Let's go. This is amazing. We're starting a new chapter today. We're starting chapter 38. And before we get into this chapter, I want to share this story that I read yesterday about the Tanya. So there was this prominent Rosh Yeshiva, not a Hasid, from the last century. His name was Rabbi Shimon Selachover. And he was proficient in the book of Tanya. And he wanted to encourage his students to learn the Tanya as well. So not to show off, but just to show how important the Tanya was to him, he said, I am Bucky. That means I'm an expert. I am very well versed in the whole Tanya. I know it all by heart. So his students thought he was exaggerating. So he said, no, no, I mean it. I'm serious. Test me. You can open up a Tanya from anywhere. You tell me a concept. You read me a sentence. And I'll tell you exactly where it is. So they open up the Tanya. They read him something. And he says, well, that's from this chapter. They read him another sentence from that chapter. Then they read him this expression. That means, let him not be a fool. Don't be a fool. That's from chapter 28, where the Altarab is explaining you have to know your place. Certain things are your province. Certain things are not your province. If you try to take on work, which is not your province, you're being foolish. Don't be a fool. And so he says, oh, don't be a fool. That line is written in every line of Tanya. Yes, it appears in chapter 28. But that idea is every line of Tanya. Don't be a fool. And that's what really what's happening for us in Tanya is that the Altarab is opening our eyes. We're getting to see the universe from an entirely higher perspective. And last chapter, we were finishing the concept of understanding that the point of us coming down here, of our souls being in this world, is to elevate the vital soul, the body, and the world. And that's why action is so supremely important. Here, the altar is going to bring this to a culmination, and then we're going to get the flip side of the coin. What's important about intention? So here we are, chapter 38. Now, if we thought in these previous chapters that we're going to get away with just dry action, all you got to do is act, your feelings don't matter, (laughs) we're kidding ourselves. That's not what the Tanya is about. Right in the beginning of the Tanya, the altar explained to us that he is here to deeply explain to clarify one verse in the Torah. The whole book of Tanya is to clarify one verse of the Torah. And that is, For this matter is very near to you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. And he said, I'm here to explain to you, how it is very close to you. Because most Rabbeinu is giving to the Torah to the Jewish people and he's saying, it's very close to you. Really? Is the Torah very close to you? And he said, in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. So we just finished describing that you may do it. Action is of primary importance. That's what it's all about. Engaging this world, taking it out of the realm of klipa, elevating it to holiness, pulling down divine light and everything, revealing the divine core and everything. That was la'asaisai to do it. But what about bilvavcha in your heart? It's not just about aligning your actions. We have to align internally. This has to be our identity. It has to be who we are. Intentions are very important. So this is something that we're going to visit in this chapter. 
In the previous chapters, the Alter Rebbe discussed the distinctive merit of mitzvot performed by speech and action, for by means of them, the vitalizing soul is elevated to holiness. The mitzvot have this ability, for they are performed with the power of the vitalizing soul that vivifies the physical limbs that perform them, and with the physical tongue and lips, etc., that utter the words of Torah and prayer. Since the ultimate intent of the soul's descent is not for the sake of the soul alone, but in order to elevate the vitalizing soul and the corporeal body, this is accomplished specifically through mitzvot that require physical action and speech. So with this in mind, v'hine, im kol hanechtav la'el, yuvan heitev pesaka halacha, harucha batamudu faiskim, dehir her lav kedibor yami. In light of all that has been said above concerning the particular virtue of mitzvot performed in action and speech in their elevation of the vital soul to holiness, one will clearly understand the halachic decision expressly stated in the Talmud and the Codes that meditation is not valid in lieu of verbal articulation. So this is a discussion in the Talmud. If somebody has concentration, they have intent, but they don't actually articulate the words, does this count? And the answer is no. It's codified by halacha that meditation is not valid in lieu of verbal articulation. Thus, if one recited the Shema in his thought and heart alone, even if he did so with the full power of his concentration, he has not fulfilled his obligation of reciting the Shema by merely meditating on the words that comprise it. He must repeat it verbally. So this is very curious because the whole theme of Shema is Kabbalas o malchus shemaim, accepting the yoke of heaven, accepting the yoke of mitzvahs. What's more important here? The words or the intentions that you have in your heart? And the halacha is that if somebody has only intentions, and not just intentions, but full power of concentration, he meditates on the words of Shema, but he doesn't actually articulate the words, it's not valid. He has to go back and recite the words again. So you can say, okay, I understand that that would be the halacha with regards to Shema. Why? Because the Torah says, and you shall speak of them. But what about other speech mitzvot? Is that true about other speech mitzvot? Does it matter if somebody has full concentration, but they just don't say the words? And as we're going to see, yes, it doesn't count. Even if a person has full concentration, but they don't actually articulate the words, it's not valid. The same is true of the blessing after meals ordained by the Torah. Although the Torah does not state with regard to the blessing after meals as it does of Shema, and you shall speak these words, one cannot fulfill, the, fulfill this duty by mere thought. And similarly with other blessings, although they are merely rabbinic in origin, and so too with prayer. Although prayer is a service of the heart, it cannot be confined to the heart, but must be articulated orally. Okay, so Shema has to be verbalized. Grace after meals has to be verbalized. What about blessings? The rabbis ordained the blessings. It's rabbinic of origin. Can you just have the concentration? I mean, what's the point of the blessings? The point of the blessings is to be grateful to Hashem. Thank him for the pleasure. Thank him for the mitzvah. Isn't the intent of the heart the most important thing? 
And then let's take it a step further. What about prayer? The Torah says, Parshas Ekev, and to serve him with all your heart. And the rabbis discuss this in the Talmud, serve him with all your heart. They ask this question, What is the service that is in the heart? Hashem is saying, you should serve, Moshe Rabbeinu is telling the Jewish people, and you should serve him with all your heart. What does that mean, serve him with your heart? So the, the sages answer in the Talmud, You have to say this service of the heart is prayer. So prayer is clearly a service of the heart. And yet, if somebody has beautiful intentions in their heart, full powers of concentration, they don't articulate the words, it's not valid. So these are mitzvahs that have two important aspects. Concentration, the intention. Speech, two components of the mitzvah. If, this, if the intention is there but not the speech, it doesn't count. The Rebbe comments that this halacha poses no intrinsic difficulty, since one can no more ask why God stipulated that a particular thought, shema, prayer, and the like, must also be verbalized, than one can ask why the mitzvah was ordained at all. However, we must understand why it is that when a mitzvah is composed of both speech and thought, the law states that verbalization without intent does fulfill the obligation. Intent without verbalization does not. So this is where we become confused because there's two aspects to the speech mitzvahs. There's the thought, the intent, and then there's the actual speech. Why don't we treat them equally? Really, you need to have thought and the speech. After the fact, if one of them wasn't there, so you only spoke, but you didn't have proper intentions, or you had proper intentions, but you didn't speak, it would be valid. Or, no, both of them have to be there, or it's not valid. But why is it that speech without intention counts? Intention without speech does not. It's the opposite law. Two different ways of treating two important components of the mitzvah. There's the speech and there's the intention. Why are we treating them differently? Intention without speech, not valid. Speech without intention, of course you should have intention. That's the best way to fulfill the mitzvah. We need to have intention. But if a person does not have intention, after the fact, the mitzvah is valid. If, on the other hand, one spoke the words of Shema, prayer, etc., but did not concentrate his thought, he has, post facto, fulfilled his obligation, although he was initially required to concentrate and need not repeat them with concentration. So yes, concentration is important. Of course, Hashem wants us to be totally present when we serve Him. But if a person has concentration and no speech, it doesn't count. On the other hand, if a person said the words but didn't concentrate, not the best way to do it, but it counts. And there is an exception. Except for the first verse of Shema and the first blessing in Shemona Esrei, where the law requires one to repeat them if he did not concentrate on their meaning while reciting them. So generally, if a person didn't concentrate, they don't have to go back. There are exceptions. They are the first verse of Shema. That's Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Elokeinu, Hashem Achad. Hear, O Israel, 
God is our Lord. God is one. The first verse of Shema, a person did not have intention while saying that. It doesn't count. They have to go back. Or the first bracha of the Amidah, Shemona Esrei. If they weren't concentrating at that time, they weren't thinking about that they are attaching to Hashem, they have to go back. It is thus written, tractate brachot, beginning of chapter 2, until here, meaning until the end of the first verse of Shema, the mitzvah is one of concentration. From here on, the mitzvah consists of recitation, and one has fulfilled his obligation, even if he did not concentrate. Okay. So in order to understand the upcoming words of the Alter Rebbe, let's review three important concepts that we visited last chapter. One, the soul does not require rectification. The soul doesn't need anything. When it was up with Hashem, it had perfect love and fear. It didn't come down here for itself. That's not why it came down here. It came here in order to, to elevate an animal soul and a body and a world. Okay. Next concept, thought alone does not utilize the vital soul. A mitzvah performed through thought is performed via the divine soul. And concept number three is that speech constitutes action. So when someone is saying words physically, that's considered an action and therefore it uses the vital soul and the body just like an action mitzvah does. So then, again, how then are we to reconcile both halachot? Why is thought without speech not as acceptable as speech without thought? The answer lies in the discussion of the unique status of mitzvot performed in action and speech as explained in the previous chapter. V'hainu, mishom shahanishama eina tzricha tikon la'asma ba'mitzvahis. This is because the divine soul does not need to perfect itself through mitzvot. Rak or nefesh Rather, the goal of mitzvot is to draw down godly light to perfect the vital soul and the body. This is accomplished by means of the letters of speech which the soul utters by means of the five organs of verbal articulation. And through the mitzvot of action, which the soul performs by means of the body's other organs. So the soul does not need to rectify itself. And here we can understand this law, why it is that here her love kidibor dummy, that concentration is not valid in lieu of verbal articulation. Because the soul doesn't need rectification. The soul came down here to rectify an animal soul and a body. So yes, these thoughts are beneficial to the soul, but they're not accomplishing the goal here. The point is to draw down light upon the animal soul and the body, and that's accomplished through speech, and that's accomplished through physical actions. Rabbi Steinhaus gives a poignant analogy of somebody who's hired to tend a garden. And he said, just by contemplating those seeded plants, he does not tend the garden. Yes, it's beneficial to his soul, but the plants have to be watered. The plants have to be weeded. They have to be tended to. And that takes actual physical action. 
The soul itself has no direct connection to this physical environment. But this physical environment is what we are meant to elevate, to reveal its deep divine core, to unite it with Hashem. Thought alone is beneficial to our soul, and it is very, very significant, as we're going to see later on in this chapter. But it's the scaffolding. It's not the building. The building is the very act of the mitzvah. That's the purpose of creation. That's the reason why our soul came down here. So we can now well understand the law that meditation is not valid in lieu of verbal articulation. Because what's the purpose here? The soul requires no rectification. The purpose here is to elevate the vital soul, to elevate the body and the world. And that happens specifically through articulating words, doing actions, speaking out with the five organs of verbal articulation or actually using our body's limbs. And that's how we create the garden. We are tending to the garden. We are drawing down Hashem's light into this world. We are elevating it to Hashem. The mitzvot involving speech and action, which utilize the power of the vital soul and the organs of the body serve to elevate them. Since the ultimate goal is the perfection of the vital soul and the body, thought alone being the province of the divine soul cannot satisfy the demands of the mitzvot of speech. They require verbal articulation. Speech alone, however, without thought is sufficient since the vital soul and the body are elevated thereby. So let's summarize what we said until now and let's move into this next section. And that is with everything learned before in chapter 37, the reason why the soul came down here, the purpose of creation, we can understand the halacha that meditation is not valid in lieu of verbal articulation. And if somebody just has full powers of concentration in their mind, but they don't actually articulate the words, it doesn't count. On the other hand, if somebody articulates the words, but he doesn't have concentration, yes, that's not the optimum way of fulfilling the mitzvah, but after the fact, it worked. And why is it? Because the soul requires no rectification. The reason why it came down here is to elevate the body and the animal soul, to elevate this world. And that happens specifically through speech and through action by utilizing the body. And in this way, we're fulfilling the purpose. When we say the speech, even if after the fact, there wasn't the proper concentration. From the beginning of chapter 35 until here, the Altarebbe has expounded the phrase to do it. The conclusion of the verse for the matter of observing Torah and mitzvot is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. He explained that the mitzvot of action and of speech, which is also deemed action, are of paramount importance since it is through them that we achieve the goal of transforming this physical world into a dwelling place for God in the lower realms, meaning a place where godliness will be revealed to an even greater degree than it is in the higher spiritual worlds. This goal will be realized when the energy of the vital soul and the body of every Jew will ascend from Klipat Noga to holiness, thereby all of Klipat Noga, meaning the vitality of the entire world, will ascend to holiness and automatically the three impure Klipot will cease to exist. Thus, there will be no obstruction of godliness in the world. Godliness will radiate throughout. The world will be God's dwelling place. So these are concepts that we visited last chapter. Since the entire process hinges on the elevation of a Jew's body and his vital soul, and since their elevation is accomplished only by means of the mitzvot of action, which require their power in the performance of these mitzvot. Therefore, the mitzvot of action are, as said, of paramount importance. In the discussion that now follows, the Alter Rebbe will examine the other side of the coin. He will explain the importance of kavana, 
devout concentration or intention in the performance of mitzvot. As used in this context, kavana refers to the motivating intention that by performing a mitzvah, one is united with God, whose command and will each mitzvah represents. So right now we're going to examine the importance of kavana. There are different kinds of kavana, like there's special intentions people will have when putting on tefillin and a different intention for the mitzvah of lulav, different specific intentions, Kabbalistic intentions that people can have when performing a mitzvah. That's not the kavana that the altar is referencing here. He's re- referencing the general but all-encompassing kavana, and that is do this in order to attach to Hashem. That's the soul of every mitzvah. We're going to visit that now. What's the significance of kavana? This intention of doing the mitzvah, of saying prayer, to cleave to Hashem. Ach, afal pichain, amru. Tefila aishar bracha, belay kavana, hein kiguf belay neshama. Yet, nevertheless, it has been said that prayer or any other blessing said without kavana is like a body without a soul. So, we first hear this expression and everything is deflated. It's like, oh my goodness, it sounds like it's worthless. We're just saying that the most important thing is get the deed done. And now the Alter Rebbe is quoting from the holy works saying, That prayer without intention is like a body without a soul. So is it worthless? And it's not just prayer. The intent is to mitzvahs as well. This is what the Arizal writes. The common expression is prayer without kavana, but this applies to mitzvahs too. A mitzvah without intention is like a body without a soul. So let's look at this carefully. Because let me tell you what the Alter Rebbe is not saying. You first hear this expression and you think it means a dead body. That's not what it means. That's not what they said. Our sages were very precise in their analogy and very precise in their words. What did they say? They said, prayer without intent is like a body without a soul. There's life force in a body, as we're going to visit, and there's life force in a soul. And both body and soul have significance, but... A soul, in a certain respect, is much loftier and way above a body. And so a mitzvah or speech, which is said without intention, is like a body. The intent in that mitzvah or speech is like a soul. And even though the act or the speech is the most significant aspect of the mitzvah, from a certain respect, the intention and the devout concentration of the mitzvah is much loftier, way above the actual deed or speech. So let's visit this. Perush. This comparison of the words of prayer to a body and of kavana to its soul means as follows. Just as all of the creatures of this world Possessing a body and a soul. Shaheim nef. What second? There are two categories of beings in this world. There are beings that are just a body, which are inanimate beings or plant life. And yes, they have something of a soul, and we'll talk about it. But for all practical purposes, right now for our discussion, there are beings with just a body. 
And then there are beings with a body and a soul. And those are animals and those are human beings. Now, looking at the second category of animals and human beings. Shehem, nefesh kol chai, v'ruach kol basar ish, v'nishmas kol asher ruach chayim ba'apav mikol ba'ali chayim. Meaning the nefesh of every living being, the ruach of all flesh, and the neshama of all that has breath of life in its nostrils among all living creatures. So here the Alter Rebbe is using three different terminologies that express soul. Nefesh, ruach, neshama. These are different terms that appear to express the soul, the life force. V'hashem mechaya es kulam umahava isam me'ayin liyesh tamid ba'or v'chayas shemashbiya bahem. God animates them all and creates them constantly out of nothingness by the light and vitality which he bestows upon them, meaning upon both the soul and the body. Okay, we're looking at this class of creatures that have body and soul. A person might think that the soul is what brings the body into existence, but actually that isn't true. There's the divine life force in each of them. There's divine life force that powers the soul, which then brings the body to a new level of existence, making it a living being. And then there's divine life force, which brings the body itself into existence. That's another divine life force. Proof of this is that God forbid a soul leaves a body, the body still exists, even though the soul is not within it anymore. Why? Because the body has a life force of its own. Yes, the life force within the soul is so much greater than the life force within the body. But each of these have divine life force. There's the divine life force that powers the soul. And the soul that we're talking about over here is not the divine soul, we're talking about the animal soul and we're talking about the souls that animals have. So we're talking about the human animal soul that comes from Klippa and we're talking about the soul that enlivens animal life. These have divine life force. So much more divine life force than the body has. But guess what? The body has a life force of its own it too is brought into existence by a special divine life force that vivifies it from Hashem. In support of his contention that the body too has a life force aside from the soul, the Alter Rebbe adds parenthetically, Shegam haguf hachumri va'afilu avanim va'afar hadaymi mamish yesh bay or v'chayos mimenu yisbarich for even the material body and furthermore, even the very stones and earth, which are absolutely inanimate, lacking even that sign of life found in plant life, meaning growth, even the totally inanimate being has within it light and vitality from God, so that it should not revert to naught and nothingness as it was before it was created. So here is a profound idea. This is something that the Alter Rebbe visits at length in Shara Yechud Ve'amuna, the next section of Tanya. And let's explore this teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. 
It says in Tehillim chapter 119, Forever, O God, your word stands in the heavens. And the Baal Shem Tov explains, what are the words standing in the heavens? What's your word that stands in the heavens? It's the words that you said, Yehi Rakia, let there be a firmament. Those words stand firmly in the heaven, constantly bringing it into existence. If those words were not standing in the heavens, the heavens would revert to nothingness. Because we cannot confuse the handiwork of man to the handiwork of God. A human being fashions a vessel. He can walk off. The vessel will continue to exist. It doesn't need him to continue to exist. On the other hand, Hashem creates heavens and earth by speaking them into existence. He has to constantly speak. Bring them into existence. He has to constantly speak them into existence in order for them to continue to exist. Otherwise, they would revert to nothingness. So anything that exists is constantly being brought into existence by the word of Hashem. That includes stones. That includes earth. That includes the physical body. The physical body has its own life force from Hashem that brings it into existence aside from the soul that powers it and brings that spirit of life that makes it a living being. There's a story of a chassid who was having an intellectual debate with another man. And he said, how would you utterly destroy this table? He said, I would smash it into pieces. He said, well, uh, there would still be splinters. He said, then I would burn it into, ash into ashes. He said, well, there would still be ashes. He said, well, then I would throw them over the ocean. He said, but the ashes would still exist. He said, okay, I give up. How would you destroy the table? He said, I would remove the word of God that brings it into existence. Because nothing exists if Hashem doesn't constantly recreate it. And so we're looking at two things that exist. We're looking at a body. And that has a life force of its own from Hashem that brings it into existence and maintains it. And then we're looking at the animal soul. We're looking at the soul of the human being. We're looking at the soul of animal life. And that too is brought into existence spiritually. It's a different kind of existence by the word of Hashem. Both of these are vivified by divine life force. But as the Alder was going to say, you can't compare. You cannot compare the amount of life force that there is in the body to the amount of life force that there is within the soul. Further in Tanya, the Altarabha explains that every existing being would instantly revert to absolute nothingness were it not for the godly life force constantly creating it and keeping it in existence. Thus, even the inanimate beings contain a life force and so surely do the bodies of living creatures. The Afal Pichain the Alter Rebbe now concludes the sentence he begun earlier. Just as in all the creatures of this world possessing a body and a soul, there is nevertheless, meaning despite the fact that the body and soul are alike and that they both contain a divine life force, there is nevertheless, there is no comparison or similarity between the quality of light and life force radiating in the body and the light and life force radiating in the neshama, which is in the soul of every living being. So the body is 
utterly physical. It's like an inanimate object. It has life force. The soul is spiritual, entirely spiritual. It also has divine life force. But you cannot compare the amount of life force that there is in the body to the amount of life force that there is in the soul. And this is all to explain the statement of our sages that prayer without intention is like a body without a soul. The speech of the mitzvah or the act of the mitzvah is compared to the life force of the body. Does the body have life force from Hashem? Yes, of course it does. It wouldn't exist if it didn't have life force from Hashem. Everything is brought into being by the word of Hashem. The amount of life force in the body is so much smaller than the amount of life force which is in the soul. And the soul is compared to the intent of the mitzvah. So there's a lot more life force in the intent of the mitzvah. I was reading this book of many Hasidic stories, uh, fascinating, and they had this story of this young yeshiva student who happened to step into 770, this was Chabad World Headquarters, and he decided to read a book that the Hasidim over there are reading. So he opens up a book of Tanya, he starts looking through the pages, closes it and says, wow, what a beautiful literary style. He was standing opposite the secretary of the previous Rebbe, and he also served as the secretary of the Rebbe, Rebbe Meisha Leib Rutstein. And he said, you know, a chassid would never express himself that way. And he said, why? What's wrong with what I said? I was complimenting the Tanya. I was saying it was written so beautifully. He said, let me tell you something. A chassid is going to go to Shul Shabbos morning. He'll spend a few hours studying and meditating on Hasidic concepts. His point is that when he leaves Shul, he should be so sure, so real and aligned with this idea that there's nothing else besides Hashem. And everything that exists is only here by virtue of his word that vivifies it. By the time he leaves Shul, walking home, he sees a horse. He doesn't even see the horse. All he sees in his mind intellectually is, here is the word of Hashem. On the other hand, you can have somebody open up a holy work, such as the Tanya. They don't see the word of Hashem. All they see is the horse. All they see is the external trappings. All they see is the literary style. You missed the point. You need to see the word of Hashem. So I just love this story because it illustrates the fact that we have to be so real with this idea that there's nothing else besides Hashem. And it's the word of Hashem that brings everything into existence. The body is brought into existence by the word of Hashem. The soul is brought into existence by the word of Hashem. Very different levels of divine life force in each. In the body, there's a minimal amount of divine life force. In the soul, there is a copious amount of divine life force. It is axiomatic that the physical is incomparable to the spiritual, so much so that philosophers agree that the evolution of the material from the spiritual is the most radical form of creation ex nihilo. The body, being physical, is thus incomparable to the soul, which is spiritual. This difference between them is obviously due to the difference between the respective divine life forces creating them. The Alter Rebbe will now explain in what way these life forces differ. The difference surely not one of varying degrees of revelation of the divine life force. Then in the body, the life force is in concealment, 
while in the soul it stands revealed. In this respect, body and soul are alike. The veil of Klipat Noga, which obscures godliness in this physical world as a whole, envelops both body and soul. So here's a good place to interject and explain two concepts that are going to be coming up. This world experiences a hiding of the divine life force. Generally, when we talk about the condition of this world, that the light has been downgraded, that the light has been diminished, there's one general term, and that's the term of symptom. But most specific, more specifically, there's ter- two terms that we use. There's hester, which means concealment, and there's symptom, which means contraction. The difference between hester and symptom is about quality versus quantity. Hester, concealment, the antonym of that is giloi, revelation. Symptom, contraction, the antonym of that would be hispastus, expansion. When we talk about hester, concealment, it means that the light's quality has been diminished. So that's the example of taking a curtain and hanging it over the window. So all the light that comes through the window now has been muffled and somewhat obscured. That is concealment. And that is a condition that affects this entire world equally, as we're going to see coming up. Then there's symptom. Symptom is contraction. So let's say you have a wall, and in the wall there's a window, and there's also a hole. The quality of sunlight coming through both the window and the hole have not been diminished. They both have the same quality of sunshine coming through. But the quantity of sunshine coming through each window or just hole in the wall is very different. So when it comes to body and soul, they experience the same level of concealment. Curtain over the window. We're going to talk about this at length. When it comes to the quantity of the light, over here there's a difference. Big difference between the amount of light that shines within the body to the amount of light that shines within the soul. So we were saying that in this world, the veil of Klipas Noga, which obscures godliness as a whole, envelops both the body and the soul. Therefore, just as the body does not attest to the fact that it is the product of divine creative power, so does the soul of living creatures belie the fact that its life-giving properties are godly. Thus, the divine life force is concealed equally in body and soul. As Rabbi Steinsaltz puts it, just as your leg doesn't see God, your soul, your animal soul, does not see God. They experience the same level of concealment. Nothing in this world screams and says, I am made by God. Certain things, you look at them, you just know there's a source. When the light is on, you don't have to meditate and say, hey, I know the light comes from somewhere. No, you see light, automatically you know there's a source. You see a being in this world. You don't see that it's made by the word of God. It doesn't attest to its source. This is a condition that affects everything in the spiritual world, body and soul. Neither of them scream out, I am made by God. That's a condition of this world. The difference between them lies rather in the intensity of godly life force that each contains. In the body, 
the life force is contracted so that the body is a physical being. In the soul, the life is freely bestowed and the soul is therefore a spiritual, life-giving being. I heard an analogy. It's like receiving an anonymous gift. Two people receive an anonymous gift. One guy receives an anonymous gift of a dollar. Another guy receives an anonymous gift of a million dollars. Neither of them know the source, but the amount is much different. And that's how it is with body and soul. Neither of them attest to their source. Both of them experience obscurity. They both experience hiddenness from the divine. But the amount of divine life force in each of them is very different. In the body, there's a small amount. In the soul, there's a huge amount. True, in terms of concealment of the countenance, meaning the degree to which the countenance, the inner aspect of the divine life force is concealed, the light, meaning the divine creative life force, is the same in both, body and soul, is concealed equally in both. The garments in which the light hides, conceals, and clothes itself are identical in both body and soul. For both body and soul are of this world, where throughout the world and all its creatures, spiritual as well as physical, the light and life force issuing from the breath of God's mouth are equally concealed. Both the animal soul and the body are of this world. Definition of being of this world means it comes through hiddenness. Neither experience the divine. In both of them, the light is equal. And the Alter Rebbe uses three words. He says, the garments in which the light misdatir, hides, misalim, conceals, umislabesh, and clothes itself by within it. Rabbi Steinsaltz points out these three terms as being three consecutive stages in this process of concealment. Stage one is mistater, it hides. What does that mean it hides? It means you know it's there, but you can't see it. So you know to look for it. Stage one, hiding. You know about it, you don't see it, so you're searching. Then there's stage two, and that's Miss Alim, conceals. At this point, you don't even know it's hiding. But you feel a void. You feel a lack. You know something is missing, so you're still searching. At this stage, it's not just searching, there's despair. Something is missing. There's a darkness. And that itself is an opening for relationship. But then there's stage three, and this is the most misleading stage. That's umislabeshbai. That's when it clothes itself within it. Now, it's not just you can't find it. It presents itself as something else. The divine life force that vivifies it appears to be something different. That's what klipa is. If you have no experience with a fruit and you see it by the peel, you think the peel is the fruit. That's what this world is. This world has a divine core. That's what this whole world is. It's the word of Hashem. And yet it hides within this world. It doesn't just 
hide. It is furthermore concealed. And furthermore, it is enclosed in this world. So it presents itself as something else. And this stage is the most dangerous. Because at this stage, there's no hiding, as it were. There's no void. It, there's a structure, a beautiful structure. Beautiful buildings, a beautiful world, great financial institutions, amazing politics at one point. Something very stable. You wouldn't even know that this is the word of Hashem. And he brings up the words of the Baal Shem Tov. In Az Yashir, the song of the Jewish people saying with Maisha Rabbeinu by the splitting of the sea, they're talking about Pari and they're saying, Amar Ayev, Erdaif, Asig, Achalek Shalal. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will catch up, I will divide the spoils. All these words, Amar, Ayev, Erdev, Asig, Achalek, start with the letter Aleph. All these Alephs in a row. What's Aleph? Aleph stands for Alufay Shel Ailam, the champion, the leader of the world, Hashem. Hashem is not just in Boratius, and he's not just in the Aleph of Anochi, the first of the Ten Commandments. Hashem is in these words of the enemy. He's hiding within Paro's words. That's when things can be so misleading. When we look at a world that presents itself to be other than Hashem, when really all that brings it into existence is the word of Hashem. So that, does, what, that is what this world is. This world is a place where the divine life force is enclosed to the point where it appears to be something else. Everything in this world experiences this condition of klipa. Everything in this world comes to be through this veil. And in this respect, no creatures differ from each other. Everything, spiritual and physical in this world, experience that same level of concealment. Divine light is hiding. It's coming through this veil of klipa snaiga. Anonymity. Hard to recognize the divine. Of course, if somebody meditates about Hashem, they're going to realize there has to be a creator or a thing does not create its own self. But we're calling upon the power of logic. Just overtly, nothing announces the creator. Nothing of this world. Everything hides its creator. Both the body as well as the soul. And again, the soul that we're referencing is the animal soul. We're not talking about the divine soul. The divine soul does not experience this concealment. The thing with us is we experience the concealment by being influenced and living at the level of the animal soul. If we work on ourselves enough and we tap into it more deeply, we will access that space where our divine soul does not experience hiddenness. So let me set up, sum up what we said until now. And yes, action is the main component of the mitzvah. After all, that's the reason why the soul came down here. Nevertheless, our sages said that Prayer or a bracha said without intention is like a body without a soul. And the intention here, the reference here is not to a dead body. It's about a body which has life force and a soul which has life force. Both of these experience concealment. Neither of these truly experience the divine light. But as we're going to see coming up when it comes to the amount of life force within them, symptom and hispashtas, amount of contraction versus expansion, there's going to be a huge difference between body and soul. 
we're still in the theory before we get to the idea to understand the difference between the act or the speech of the mitzvah versus the power of concentration, the kavana, the intention in the mitzvah. So I'm closing class here for today and I'm opening up for questions and discussion.